Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Today in Episode 6, I'd like to talk about one of the most famous and controversial stories in Genesis, and that is the story of the Great Flood. Most people have heard at least the general outlines of how God decided to destroy humanity, except for the prophet Noah and his family, plus a mating pair of every animal. God has Noah build an ark, all of the animals somehow cram themselves in, the flood comes and goes, and the survivors emerge to repopulate the world. Back in the 19th century, European scholars and archaeologists working in what is modern-day Iraq and Syria discovered cuneiform texts written on clay tablets. They managed to crack these ancient languages, first Akkadian, which is a cover term for Babylonian and Assyrian, and then an even older language, Sumerian. This was a remarkable intellectual feat and quite a story in itself. Soon, thousands of tablets began flooding the museums, universities, and private collections of Europe. Among the sensational discoveries found in these texts were stories of a great flood that nearly wiped out humanity, except for one person and his family who survived with divine help. To say that this caused a stir would be a gross understatement. These texts were hugely controversial. Some said they confirmed the Bible. Others claimed just the opposite, that the Bible was essentially plagiarized from Babylonian sources. The reality, as you might expect, is a bit more nuanced than that, but it's pretty clear that these stories from these ancient texts contain many echoes of what we find in Genesis, and are definitely related. There are three major versions of the flood story from the cuneiform sources. The most famous is from the Epic of Gilgamesh. The oldest appears in a Sumerian copy and then reappears in several Babylonian versions. A second story, called the Epic of Atrahasis, also contains a flood story. Finally, there is a much later version recounted as part of something called the Babylonian History, written by one Barosus, a Babylonian official who lived in the 3rd century BCE, and it was written to explain his culture to the ruling Greeks and Macedonians. Each variant of the story has its own unique features, but there are similarities that are worth noting. In each case, humans somehow grew too numerous and well, noisy, such that they disturbed the peace of the gods. The chief god, Enlil, decided that they were better off without humans and plotted to destroy them. One of the gods, Enki, who had played a major role in the creation of humans, somehow manages to warn one of them of what was coming, with instructions for how to avoid the coming catastrophe. In each Babylonian version of the Flood, the Flood lasts only seven days. The Genesis version lasts quite a bit longer. But when humanity re-emerges, the gods decide that perhaps they were better off with humans to do the dirty work they had been created to do in the first place, and to offer those yummy sacrifices that the gods also enjoyed. To summarize, the Babylonian view was that humans were once useful tools that had become a noisy nuisance to be exterminated as if they were a pest animal. 
Only by subterfuge and thwarting the will of Enlil do humans survive, along with the gods having a change of heart. In one version, the story closes with the gods putting deadly diseases and other measures in place to keep the human population from exploding. Just one quick side note before we continue. Could the flood stories be based on a real flood? One theory that gained some attention back in the mid-90s proposed that there had been a series of massive floods from the Black Sea region that spilled across the Middle East. Last I heard, the jury was still out on whether the geological evidence supports the idea, but I think there are other more immediate antecedents. Floods in southern Mesopotamia, the land of Babylon and ancient Sumer, were commonplace. They were sudden, unpredictable, and since most of the land consisted of loose alluvial soil, a major flood could sweep away levees and change the course of the Tigris or Euphrates in that region rather dramatically. Considering that nearly everything there was built of sun-dried mud brick, a major flood was about the worst possible thing that could happen to your village or city, so it makes sense that there was a feeling of peril associated with floods. By contrast, ancient Egypt does not have a catastrophic flood myth that we know of. Instead, they had the annual flooding of the Nile, which was regular and utterly predictable. You could expect it to start within a span of roughly a week in August and end just as predictably sometime in October. It brought with it a rich deposit of extremely fertile silt to spread over the low-lying farmlands, and when the farmers returned to their plots when the flood was over, their fields were basically ready to plant. During the floods, many farmers worked on public works projects or building pyramids. Let's return to the Babylonian flood stories for a moment. We've mentioned in earlier episodes, particularly regarding the creation stories, that Genesis is in a dialogue with ideas that prevailed in the environment where it received its final editorial shape, the Jewish exile in Babylon. The same thing obtains here. The author of the flood story is not borrowing or stealing the story. In my opinion, he is turning it around and throwing it back at the Babylonian worldview to make a very different and contrary point. In Genesis, God has his own reasons for wishing to destroy humanity. The whole project had just gone terribly wrong. The earth was filled with violence, the Bible says, and everything was corrupt. The mandate not to kill animals for human use was almost immediately ignored. Other passages implied that humans had taken to killing each other, not just on a life-for-life -life basis, but even over slurs and slights. God regretted that he had made humans and decided to start over with the one person who still had his favor, Noah. What follows is the construction of the ark, and then the flood, which follows a very odd timetable using a, an elaborate calendrical system that does not map to any other known calendar system in the ancient Near East, or the classical world for that matter. The months are all 30 days long, which by itself sets it apart. This is something that has puzzled biblical scholars literally for centuries. However, some fairly recent research seems to have arrived at an answer that is both fascinating and, well, rather elegant. This hypothesis is based on the work of Dr. Ann Kilmer, who for many years was a professor of Assyriology at the University of California, Berkeley. 
In the spirit of full disclosure, Dr. Kilmer was my dissertation chair and invited me to assist her in the preparation of her paper, which was published in 2004. Dr. Kilmer's main insight came during a discussion of the flood chronology, and she realized that the number of days between when the ark was closed up and when it opened again after the flood totaled 278, which just happens to be the period of human gestation. This raised the possibility that the ark was in fact a kind of uterine symbol surrounded on the outside by waters that were simultaneously destructive, but could also be seen as creative. From that point on, she discovered one connection after another. Much of those flood waters emerged from the great deep that had originally covered the earth. The flood from the deep is dispersed by the great wind from God that also disturbed the primordial waters in Genesis 1. The verbs used in Hebrew by which God closed Noah up in the ark and by which he emerged afterwards are the same as those used to describe God closing a womb in periods of infertility and of a baby emerging at birth. Kilmer also noted that the waters of the Genesis flood reached their height at 150 days, which is also the point at which a uterus reaches maximum expansion and by careful observation and palpation, a midwife can ascertain the health of the fetus. This 150-day mark is significant. It appears twice, once in Genesis chapter 7, verse 24, but again in chapter 8, verse 4, which just happens to be very near the midpoint of the narrative, perhaps as a kind of literary device. There are also some striking parallels in the cuneiform literature. Cuneiform birth rituals regularly refer to the fetus as a boat that must navigate the dark, dangerous waters of the womb and must be unmoored or untied as they reach their destination. My spouse, Dr. Denise Greaves, discovered another interesting reference from Lucretius on the nature of the universe, where he compares a newborn baby to a shipwrecked sailor, quote, cast up by the cruel sea, naked on the ground, speechless and helpless, when nature has thrown him forth with painful birth from his mother's womb to the sunlit world. This new hypothesis should also put to rest one of the major questions about the Genesis Flood. Did it really happen? Clearly, with this new evidence, it's now obvious what has always been pretty clear. The story is a metaphor. Now, this is not to completely dismiss the vast interpretive tradition among Jews, Christians, and Muslims that take the story literally. They are part of the history of this text, and they've had their own role to play in the communities where they grew up. But the original intent of the text, as it was set down, was to make a theological point rather than describe an actual cataclysm. Scholars have long sensed that there were creative aspects to the flood story, but that whole thing about wiping out every living thing on the planet made it harder to tease out. However, assuming Dr. Kilmer's hypothesis is correct, the flood story in Genesis 
chapters 7 and 8, is not only a creation story, it constitutes a brilliant riposte to the Babylonian worldview as articulated in their flood mythologies. Humanity is not saved by accident or behind-the-scenes cunning by a subordinate. It was part of the plan all along, even if the original creation did not work out as intended. Other events surrounding the Flood have obvious parallels to those accompanying the first creation. Like Adam, Noah plays an active role in this new creation by building the instrument for preserving and establishing new life. Humans and animals are paired off, two by two, male and female. After the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah in which he gives very specific instructions about what they may and may not eat, just as he did with Adam and Eve, but with some significant differences that we'll get to presently. Noah also plants a grapevine and makes some wine from the harvest. It must have been good stuff because he passes out and, when he wakes up, he's naked. The parallel with the forbidden fruit and subsequent nakedness of Adam and Eve are obvious. One of his sons fails to cover his father's nakedness and, as a result, is cursed as an agent of Noah's shame, just as the serpent is cursed for bringing about Adam's shame. So it seems pretty clear that these items are intended to parallel the temptation and fall stories that we find earlier, as well as the instructions that God gives to Adam and Eve as part of their responsibility over creation. In other words, this is a creation story too, but with a very interesting difference. If the Ark is a uterine symbol, then there is a female element in this that has been ignored, and perhaps should not be. Creation by fiat, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, is solely the province of lone male gods throughout the ancient Near East. The idea that God would use a feminine methodology to do this second creation is, frankly, rather extraordinary. A female creator goddess, as one finds in other ancient cosmogonies, would have been out of the question for strictly monotheistic Israel. But Genesis places great importance on the fact that humans are in the image of God, which is both male and female. Bookending the primordial history between a masculine and a feminine cosmogonic inclusio, as it were, makes it possible to apply that understanding to the final cosmic product without violating monotheistic sensibilities. We now come to the instructions that God gives to Noah and his family. This is a far more important section than is generally recognized by the casual reader, but here we find many of the ethical roots of Jewish law, as laid down later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Humans are reestablished on earth and given the blessing to multiply and replenish, just as they were the first time. But what remains unresolved is the matter of keeping all this from happening again. God decides not to destroy humans, specifically not by a flood. That's fine as far as it goes, but there remains the penchant for violence in humans, and they are carnivorous in spite of animals being off their mandated diet. To put it another way, the problem is jurisdiction over life and death, which, as we saw before, is the one thing God reserves to himself. The answer is a concession on God's part, given in Genesis 9. Where Adam and Eve could only eat plants, God now allows humans access to animals, 
verses 2 and 3. The fear and dread of you shall rest upon every animal of the earth, and on every bird of the air, and on everything that creeps on the ground, and on all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. However, God retains his own jurisdiction over life. He requires that the blood of any animal that is used to be returned to the earth. It was believed that the life of a creature resided in its blood. Not only may they not ingest blood, the penalty for doing so is harsh. God requires a reckoning for the blood of both humans and animals. Shedding human blood and improper disposal of animal blood both carry the sentence of death. In fact, improper disposal of animal blood is equivalent to murder. To put it another way, God is attempting to impose new rules that will prevent this violent and carnivorous new humanity from descending into the same brutality that prompted the flood in the first place. Those rules are twofold. Human blood must not be shed, and animal blood must not be ingested. We will return to this later when we take up Jewish dietary laws and the legal prohibitions against eating blood found in the book of Leviticus, but for now it's enough to understand that while humanity is and always will be capable of violence, the God of Genesis makes this adjustment to restrict it to an acceptable minimum. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.